Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. We in a recession, headed for a recession, and does it really matter given that in 2022, we experienced one of the worst performing stock and bond markets ever? How will a continued robust job market, slowing inflation, and higher interest rates impact corporate earnings this year? These are all topics that will have some impact on your portfolio performance this year and potentially into 2024. Jordan Jackson is a global market strategist at JP Morgan. Jordan has authored several papers on the economy and markets and is responsible for conducting research for JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, which I utilize in managing investment portfolios. Although the U.S. as a whole may not be in a technical recession, if you look at it industry by industry, there are certainly specific sectors that are in a downturn, such as technology, residential, and commercial real estate, to name two. Jordan and I dive headfirst into what the economic and corporate earnings data may mean to investor portfolios. We also deep dive into how much sleep Jordan Jordan is getting as a new father, and he shares the best thing about being a new dad. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordan Jackson. Jordan Jackson, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. Excited to be here. Yeah, I know this has been uh, this has been a long time coming. At well, I guess long time is probably maybe an exaggeration. But we first met at a, a financial planning conference in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, back in September last year. And I was so impressed with with your um, presentation. I'm like, I'm gonna have to have this guy in the podcast. So as soon as you got off the uh, off the off the stage, I, I walked right up to you and uh, had a conversation. And, and glad we did, and, and glad we were finally able to get this scheduled. So, no, I remember it was uh, it was it was it was a great time. It was my colleague uh, Randy Parpar was out there with us, and uh, uh, once we met, I, I was very much looking forward to the opportunity to, to join you on the podcast. So again, ha- happy to be here. Yeah, that was actually I think our first um FPA Michigan conference that we were back live in. So it was it was really great to see a lot of people and and have great presenters back um like yourself. So I think the the place I normally start with with guests is to uh introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background. Um people probably don't know who you are, but I know who you are from JP Morgan because I've been reading your guys' research for years. Um so I think why don't we start there? Talk a little bit about your background and how you came into the world of finance because you have a pretty interesting career transition that that I'd like that you to tell that story because if there's one thing about this podcast over the last two and a half years of, of hosting it, it's we talk a lot about life transitions and uh, you, you're going through a couple right now as well. So we'll get into that. Um, sure. So, uh, I, I'm originally from, uh, from New York. Uh, my dad is, uh, is owns his uh, own dentist practice in, in Queens and, um, uh, they're graduates of the university of Virginia. So, uh, I, I followed in my parents' footsteps and, 
uh, went down to the University of Virginia from from New York. Um, Charlottesville is a be- beautiful, uh, beautiful city and had a great time there. Actually majored uh, in African-American studies uh, and minored in business Spanish. So that's a fancy way of saying I, I, I spent a semester abroad in Valencia, Spain, uh, which was which was really, really exciting and probably one of the uh, one of the biggest highlights of my collegiate career. Um, I, I moving into my uh, senior year in undergrad, I uh, got an internship uh, at J.P. Morgan uh, within their asset management division, uh, really more so focused on their marketing and, and distribution. Um, and that translated to a full-time offer uh, also within asset management, but specifically on our consultant relations desk. So uh, I actually started my career facing off with institutional consulting firms. Um, you know, think about, you know, UVA's endowment. You know, they don't have the capacity to uh, have an investment committee. So they go out and they hire an institutional consulting firm to really help out with their portfolio and asset allocation more broadly. And so, you know, my job, again, was to face off with those institutional consultants uh, on those uh, portfolios across endowments, healthcare, healthcare plans, pension plans, defined contribution plans, really the whole gambit. Um, and so that really allowed me uh, sort of a high level on uh, what sort of my first steps into, into asset management, how to think about portfolio construction at the institutional level, uh, and really gave me a little bit of insight also onto the alternative side of, bi- of the business, you know, things like infrastructure, transport, uh, real estate. Uh, and so uh, that, that was really a great sort of first step uh, into into the business. Uh, realized I, I I had a you know love for for research um, and I grew really pa- passionate about investment strategy uh, and, 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 and capital markets. And so uh, after about two years, I, I moved over to our market insights team um, to, to really do that, really be, be generate the ideas uh, across JP Morgan Asset Management um, and, and how we're thinking about the markets, how we're thinking about the economy, uh, where we're overweighting, underweighting different sectors uh, across the markets. And um, it's just been a, it's just been a great fun, call it last uh, six years now uh, on, on the group. So, yeah. And for full disclosure, I, I get your guys' data every month, every quarter. You guys produce this um, incredible wealth of information that I use. When I'm building uh, my own portfolios for my family office clients, uh, making asset allocation decisions, and it, also full disclosure, I know I have this somewhere in my in the in the, in the recording somewhere, but I actually do use um, J.P. Morgan um, ETF products, so uh, definitely want the uh, viewers to to know that. So, um, there's one piece of that story that you that. And I wasn't quite sure where I was going to get to this, but I might as well get to it now. But there's one part of that story that that you kind of left out that we talked about when we first met was your music career. <laughs> oh wow! So um, you knew I was going to bring that up. <laughs> so my my first instrument uh, was in the fifth grade. I uh, started on the trombone. Uh, then I moved over to the tuba. I actually spent two years. Uh, uh, at, at Juilliard's pre-college division. Uh, so I, I remember 13, 14 years old, my, my mom would, would, would pack my, my four and a half, five foot tall self. My instrument was actually bigger than I was <laughs> uh, in the car every Saturday morning and we would drive out and, and I would, uh, you know, be, be classically trained at, at Juilliard. Uh, and then in high school, I moved on to uh, the trumpet, fell in love with jazz um, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, and, and I moved on to the trumpet and I actually still have my horn, uh, uh down here I- I- in the basement. Uh, unfortunately, I don't, 
uh, play as much as I'd like. But, um, uh, you know, that that's certainly one of the highlights of, 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 of growing up and, and being uh, musically inclined, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was an awesome story of how you transitioned from uh, from music to finance. So I definitely wanted my my uh, audience to know about that. So let's let's kind of get into one of the the questions that I've been dealing with a lot, and I'm sure you guys have as well. Is this whole recession talk? And you know, it, I think a lot of people the the way that they phrase the the question to me is is are we are we going to have a recession? And to me, the answer is always easy. Yes, we'll always have recessions. Um, it's a matter of how deep or shallow they may be. But I think the one thing that's really interesting that's going on now, and I'd like you kind of di- dive into this, Jordan, is it seems like the recession's happening on an industry by industry basis. So you, there's a lot of headlines out there with the tech industry, like the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world, you know, having all these cutbacks. Um, but then you look at you know the energy sector still booming, transportation sector still doing well, industrials still doing well. So it's kind of like a tale of two worlds. I mean, if you're in the tech industry or the you know uh, 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 residential um, you know residential or commercial real estate markets, you're probably in a recession um, and, and feeling the effects of that personally. But if you're in another industry, you may not be. So. Walk us through like what what you're seeing from from that perspective from a recession and and kind of give our viewers does it really matter if the whole economy is in a recession or if it's just sector specific like I just kind of laid out? No, though that's 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 uh, almost spot on. Um, you know, as I, I try to remind our, our investors and our listeners that um, the median American worker is only about 38, 39 years old. And so professionally, most folks only really remember the pandemic recession and the global financial crisis. I mean, these were two multi-generational type of recessions that really got squeezed into, uh, you know, less than 15 years apart. Um, and, and you know, how I think about it is, is we, if you go back further than that, we've actually had more garden variety, shallow, murky type of recessions. And, and I think that's sort of what is uh, beginning to play out. I think about the recession of, of the early 2000s, you know, for an example, where, you know, the peak in the unemployment rate was only at around 6%. Uh, and right now we're at about three and a half percent on the unemployment rate. But, you know, what you highlighted, I think, is exactly what we're seeing is where some parts of the economy are coming under pressure and other parts of the economy uh, are, are are still booming. Uh, you know, while we're while we see we're seeing a lot of headlines around uh, technology, uh, for an example, as as a sector, uh, these 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 large companies, um, they only actually account for about two percent of the overall workforce. And so, you know, if we actually were to scrap all the tech jobs uh, in the economy, you'd actually only see about you know call it a half of a percent move higher uh, in the unemployment rate. Um, and, and and so, and you could certainly make the argument that coming out of the pandemic, uh, the tech sector really overhired. Uh, and so, in many cases, they're really sort of trimming the fat uh, uh, at this point, given uh, just about everybody sort of expects uh, a a recession. And I guess that's maybe the last point that that I would uh, uh, leave on is uh, this seems to be one of the most telegraphed uh, recessions. Uh, Everyone seems to be expecting uh, a recession uh, hitting the economy sometime in in 2023. Uh, And so in terms of from the markets, right, uh, I do think markets have more or less I kind of sniffed this out, you know, the probability of a recession. 
it it does matter, right? I, I think what 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 would matter for for investors is so the volatility associated a, around uh, markets and recessions. Now we know markets tend to bottom before a recession actually uh, hits. Historically, that that tends to be the case, um, and and then it starts to you know price in a little bit more optimism, right? You know, coming out of coming out of a recession. Uh, but once the recession actually hits, you know, markets are probably going to be pretty choppy. Uh, and you'll probably see a, a bigger dispersion among sectors uh, that are going to be hardest hit uh, as a result uh, of the of the uh, of, of what the recession actually looks like. Um, so so it does matter. But from a longer run perspective, investors who have a longer term approach to markets, uh, stocks are on sale, you know, and, and, and you know, when markets were uh, high flying in, in, in 2021 and valuations were at, you know, 21, 22 times forward earnings. And now things are at 15, 16 times. Again, stocks are on sale and they look attractive for, for longer-term uh, investors. When you're talking with other investors, both maybe you know on the personal side, or I know you deal more so with the international side, that's one of the reasons why when your data comes out, I dig into it because I think the normal, um, the everyday investor out there who's getting their financial news, if you will, just from the headlines, and there's so much saber rattling around... Um, this recession talk, but when you really get into the details of the data, it's really not that bad. Now, uh, granted, again, if you're in one of those you know industries that's hard hit right now, whether it's a tech sector or you know I've had you know numerous you know families that I work with you know go through layoffs over the last six months because they work in the mortgage industry. Um, talk about like <laughs> how you necessarily have that conversation. With people about, look, the the headlines are could actually be, you know, worse than 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 what re- the reality is actually saying. Well, that that's one of the reasons that you know we use our, our guide to the markets. You know, we really try to provide uh, a, a clarity amongst a complex array of issues uh, and, and and headlines. Um, and so, it, it, for us, it's more so about leaning on the data, not necessarily again the headlines, as as, as you mentioned. Um, and, and, and in many ways, that ends up dispelling a lot of myths throughout the economy. But the, the way I sort of deal with the, the, this problem is you're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you had a large amount of, of, of stimulus uh, hitting consumers. Uh, now, I think uh, the everyday consumer feels like they have or citizen. They've got a little bit more um, uh, selectivity in, in that next job. Uh, I think they feel they have got a bit more bargaining power just given the lack of labor supply uh, that's out there uh, at the moment. Uh, and so it's just been really hard as a, as a business owner to, to, to find work. You know, I mentioned my dad is, a, is, is, is ha- owns his own dentist practice in, in Queens, and uh, he's had uh, challenges just trying to find a, a, a capable and qualified a dental assistant. Uh, and this has really been a challenge over the last, you know, call it year, year and a half. And, 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 and I think it's going to continue to be a challenge uh, in in the years ahead, um, and so you know, a lot of different sectors of the economy are, are feeling uh, this labor supply shortage. Uh, I think the, the everyday citizen feels they've got a bit more bargaining power uh, in terms of what that next job looks like, and 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 even the wages that they maybe uh, sh- should be demanding uh, from from their employers. Uh, and so there's there's this tug of war right between uh, business owners trying to find, be able to find uh, qualified labor. Uh, at a cost that makes sense for their business, uh, while 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 consumers have maybe a little bit more bargaining power 
in an environment in which uh, uh, you know there's just just a lack of qualified workers uh, in the economy today. Let's uh, let's pivot to the other <laughs> hot topic uh, when it comes to uh, the everyday consumer. And, and I had Cullen Roche uh, on my show uh, back in December talking about inflation. Um, more than likely, we probably have seen peak inflation, but that doesn't mean people still aren't feeling it. I mean, we here in Metro Detroit, you know, gas is back over three dollars a gallon. Um, I, it seems like the the hot uh, topic these days is the cost of eggs. Uh, I heard out in California, a dozen eggs is going for like eight bucks now. Um, what what are you guys seeing on the inflation front? I mean, obviously the the data is showing that it's still coming down, but given that we're still at such elevated levels that we were accustomed to over the last I don't know decade or so, where where what's your guys's take on that? No, it's interesting because sort of how we were talking about how parts of the economy were were under pressure while other parts were, were doing well. You know, parts of the inflation, uh, you know, components of inflation, some are still running hot while while others are are, are starting to subside. Um, and so some of it is, you know, the calculation, right? The methodology that um, uh, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses in, in deriving uh, the CPI baskets or the inflation that baskets. Uh, but right now, where we're seeing most of the uh, uh, either disinflation or outright deflation uh, is still in energy, um, you know, with with gas prices certainly down off of their peaks uh, from the middle of last year. Um, you know, other parts of core core goods. Right. Remember coming out of the pandemic, everyone bought a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you can. And it took forever to come in. You know, things are finally able to. Uh, you know, order something and order a coffee table, and it's finally getting in at a, at a reasonable time. And you know, it's not you know probably as expensive as it was back in uh, back in the tail end of 2020. Uh, so those prices are, are coming down. Uh, but where we're you know still seeing a bit of the inflationary pressures are are at grocery stores, uh, are at restaurants. You know, food you know being one of those elements that uh, continue to prices continue to inflate. Uh, and also still, uh, even though uh, you know housing is coming under pressure. Uh, we're still seeing sort of, you know, shelter costs and, and rental inflation uh, that's still running uh, pretty, uh, pretty hot. And so, um, you know, while, I, you know, if you probably signed a, a lease in the last month or so, uh, you probably have noticed, you know, maybe leases are, are starting to roll over. Uh, but they're still somewhat elevated from, you know, certainly where we were uh, prior to the prior to the pandemic. And so, again, there's components of inflation that are still running hot, some uh, components that are actually beginning to cool. And that the the, the cooling uh, components of inflation have really helped to get us past the peak inflation rate. And we're finally starting to see inflation move down. Uh, as of last month, you've got inflation that's running at about six and a half percent. Remember that peak inflation rate was at about nine percent. Uh, but remember, inflation is measured on a year over year basis. Uh, um, you know, so uh, when we look at some of the month over month, we're seeing, again, some of those uh, components starting to come down, but also still seeing things like housing and food inflation uh, still running uh, running a bit hot. Yeah, I think for for most people, when they go to the gas station, they go to the grocery store, um, they, they see that day in, day out, weekend, week out. And I think that's still, I, I think that that has a uh, impact on people's mindsets of, you know, how much they're spending, where they're spending. So are you guys are you guys seeing in the data at all like any any pullback in in discretionary spending because 
you know, you look at the the travel industry, that's still smoking hot, like trying to get on a cruise ship or trying to book a plane. Um, Disney has had their struggles, but, you know, go to a Disney park and it's still packed. No, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, we haven't necessarily seen discretionary spending uh, beginning to, to, to roll over. Uh, it's just really where the source of where that spending is coming from. And so, you know, whereas uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, the population was using the unemployment checks, they were using uh, enhanced unemployment uh, insurance benefits. Um, you know, they were using, again, those one-time checks uh, that, that were distributed in order to fuel uh, a lot of that spending. Now they've, you know, maybe dipping into some of their savings accounts in order to fuel some of that spending, or they're ramping up some of their credit card balances in order to fuel uh, a bit of that spending. So, you know, it's it's shifting, but we're seeing uh, consumption uh, remain still pretty robust uh, amongst consumers. And I think part of the reason is because uh, you've got just this really, really tight labor markets, right? And we, we've kind of talked about this, uh, but the idea that, you know, most people, if they want a job, uh, they either have a job or can find a job uh, pretty, pretty quickly in this environment. Um, and so with the exception of some of the sectors that we've talked about, like technology uh, and, and, and housing. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know I, I recently bought a home in, in, in D.C. last year. Uh, well, actually, now not last year, the year before last in 2021. And I, we were doing a little bit of work done and uh, we couldn't find a plumber. Right. Uh, right. You can certainly find uh, a plumber. So, you know, I think I think things are getting uh, a, a, a little bit better. And um, uh, while while inflation is, is, is starting to roll over and, and come down, we may be in a position in which, um, you know, incomes finally start to outpace the rate of inflation. And that would put consumers in a pretty good spot uh, in terms of uh, their spending down the road, you know, over the next couple of quarters. So one of the things I'm still having a, a hard time getting my arm, ra- arms wrapped around is this uh, the strong labor market. If it remains tight to some degree, is that going to continue to put pressure on inflation and keep you know cost high? Yeah. So as we think about the fee through, um, inflation is a function of the prices that are set by companies. Right. You know, you go to a restaurant or whatever you go, you go to, to your grocery store. Right. Those prices are set by Walmart, except Target, whatever, uh, whatever have you. Now, of course, those companies have to employ people and they have to pay them wages. And typically wages are the largest share uh, of a company's expense. Uh, and so what so the feed through is if, if I'm a company and I have to pay more uh, for labor, uh, which is already the largest cost on my balance sheet, then I'm going to have to charge more in order to protect my profitability, to, pre- to protect my margins. And of course, I've got a duty to my shareholders who own uh, a share of a share of the stock. And you know, I want to I want to report good earnings. In order to do that, I've got to I've got to protect protect my margins, right? Manage my bottom line, those costs, while still being able to generate revenues. And and a big piece of that revenues is 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 pricing power, right? Being able to price goods and services in a way uh, that's profitable to our business and, and profitable to our shareholders. And so what the concern is, you get this, uh, what, what economists will call a wage price spiral, right? And this notion in that a tight labor market generates uh, consistently persistent higher wages where companies have to continue to try to pay more in order to attract that additional worker and generate additional output um, and thereby having to charge higher prices uh, in order to in order to meet that demand, and that's how you get this wage price spiral. 
Um, it was very much evident in, in the 70s and the 80s when you had a very strong union membership. You think about uh, it was it was the union going up against J.P. Morgan, uh, not not just Jordan Jackson trying to lobby for higher wages. <laughs> um, and so you so there's there was just generally more more bargaining power. But, you know, I think in this environment in which supply is just so tight, we could very well stay in an environment uh, in which finding that additional worker is going to continue to be a challenge. And, you know, maybe prices continue to move down, but um, it does suggest that maybe inflation can kind of run at a persistently higher level than what we might have been used to over the past decade or so. You, know, you think coming up to the pandemic, inflation really only ran uh, at around one and a half percent, you know, year over year over year consistently. You know, now with this lack of labor, maybe we step into an environment in which inflation sort of runs between two to two and a half percent, just given this persistent uh, uh, lack of labor supply and this wage inflation kind of feeding through into a higher overall inflation. I, I think that's actually a perfect segment into the the next question I wanted to talk about, which um, for a lot of my my family office clients, uh, they hear me talk about corporate earnings trends a lot because I base that, um, that's a foundational piece of the asset allocation decisions. And um, uh, when, when I'm choosing to buy or sell a, a company within our portfolio, right now, it seems to me that that corporate earnings um, still have the ability to come down because they may not have you know, experienced all of this cost pressure uh, that we just talked about. It is, are you guys seeing that in, in the data? Are, are you guys expecting you know, corporate earnings trends to, to come down this year? Yes, we are expecting uh, earnings, uh, earnings estimates uh, to, to, to really begin to, to come down. You know, right now, uh, markets are pricing in roughly four to five percent earnings growth. Uh, over the course of 2023, and in an environment in which, you know, at best we're looking at a slowdown in the overall economy, at worst we're looking at an outright recession, uh, albeit a modest one. Earnings tend to be hypercyclical, meaning they tend to move to a greater degree uh, than what the broader economy is doing. And so, if we're talking about a mild contraction in the economy, you know, that would suggest earnings will need to contract to the tune of around down 10 to down 15 percent. Uh, over the course of this year, and th- and that's just not being appreciated uh, in stock prices uh, today. So, okay. I, go ahead. I was just going to ask because I've made this point with with some of my my families is that given that pressure, does does that mean that the the stock market has a you know it 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 could go a le- another leg lower? I mean, we just had this twenty percent plus correction, depending on. What what index you look at, whether it's S and P five hundred that was down almost twenty percent last year, the Nasdaq you know down over thirty percent, the Dow actually did the best. But does does that does that earnings pressure will that put additional pressure on prices, stock prices needing to come down? Yes, I mean, and it, it certainly goes back to the volatility that we talked about, right? And so just the magnitude of moves. Uh, that you'll see uh, in, in the market where we're knee deep in the reporting season. Uh, we just had a couple of the big banks beginning to report fourth quarter 2022 earnings. Uh, but really importantly, you know, again, markets being forward looking, they're going to be looking at the forward guidance that a lot of these CEOs are going to provide in terms of what they expect uh, their earnings growth to look like over the next four quarters. And that will really help analysts to fine tune some of those earnings estimates. And that's why we think 
uh, some of these revisions, we're going to see net downward revisions, uh, earnings estimates, again, beginning to, to, to roll over. Uh, but as we continue to talk about, you know, this is not, um, you know, sort of uh, an economy, uh, a, a, a labor market in which uh, you just paint one broad uh, stroke and that sort of defines the, the, the state of play. Uh, typically, what you tend to see are more defensive sectors, sectors like healthcare, utilities, consumer staples. Uh, the, their earnings revisions tend to be a lot smaller than what you would see in sectors like energy and, and technology and consumer discretionary. So in an environment in which you know earnings estimates may come under pressure, they're probably going to do it more so on the more cyclically orientated uh, parts uh, of the economy, right? Those 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 start parts of the the market that are more sensitive to, to economic activity and being able to generate you know revenues when consumers are right spending. But the reality is, um, you know, we're, we're if we're sick, we're going to continue to go to the doctor. Uh, uh, we're going to continue to uh, pay our utility bills, right? We'll cut back on discretionary spending, but consumers will do all that they can to continue to keep the lights on. Right. And uh, and so those sectors, uh, those those parts of the market tend to hold up a bit well, uh, a bit better in, uh, in in a recession. So I think it comes back to like one of the points I think we were making before. It's really a tale of of two economies, if you will. It 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 really you you really need to deep dive into sector specifics and not look at it, you know, as a whole, because it, it you can get a very distorted picture. No, that that, that that's exactly right. And, and so. You know, even within our portfolios today, we're still leaning uh, a bit more defensive, just because we're 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 not you know well, we have an idea, of course, but you know we can't say definitively uh, how the recession is going to play out. But as I mentioned, right, you know people are still going to pay for their toothpaste and, and their toothbrushes, and so um, you know we're just leaning a bit more defensive uh, within within our, our our equity allocation. But again, as we talked about, markets and the economy tend to be on different uh, sleep sleep schedules. And um, as 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 a new dad, I, I, I <laughs> getting on a good sleep schedule is 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 the hardest thing right now. But uh, with that with that in mind, um, you know, I do think once markets kind of tease out what the nature of the recession would actually look like, uh, the depth and severity, uh, it'll it'll price that in, and then and then it'll start to look forward to some optimism in 2024, uh, potentially when the Fed steps in and and maybe provides a little bit of accommodation. Uh, by more uh, easier monetary policy, are you guys are you guys pricing that in at all? Do you, do you, I mean, in the headlines, we call it the the Fed pivot, if you will. Um, are you guys are you guys thinking that could happen sometime in twenty three or or not? So, I, the Fed seems pretty committed to lifting rates to at or slightly above five percent uh, by by the end of the first quarter of this year. Um, and keeping and keeping rates there for for a period of time, uh, and we think a period of time means the duration of, of 2023. Now, maybe their push to the last the December meeting of 2023, uh, maybe that's when they start to start to cut. But I think uh, they're pretty committed to try and and not start cutting until until 2024, uh, and that's when we get the the pivot. But again, markets are forward looking, so they may start to signal. Uh, that they'll start cutting rates maybe in September. Uh, and I think at that point, you'll see markets really rally uh, and take off uh, given, the, uh, given the, uh, the, the expectation that the Fed, again, will start to uh, ease up on their hawkish re- uh, rhetoric and, and be a bit more accommodative uh, in 2024. And, and that's where I think you guys, I think we share the same 
thesis on this where we could see a lot of volatility here in the first six, seven months of the year. And then towards the back half of the year, we could see, you know, that, you know, potential um, rally, if you will, even though it's a head scratcher right now, Jordan, like the, like the, the S&P's rallied 4%, 5% so far this year. And that's, that, that's puzzling to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of it is, is certainly, um, uh, rate driven, uh, in terms of rate, I would say rate and inflation driven and given a sense that, uh, we, we've gotten a couple of inflation prints that suggest that inflation is coming down. And that would suggest that maybe the Fed doesn't have to hike until 5%. Maybe they hike until, you know, 475 to 5% on the Fed funds rate and just cool out there for a little bit. And, and I think, you know, markets are sort of cheering uh, that probability. You've seen uh, rates also come down uh, so far this year uh, as well, both uh, both short rates as well as long-term rates. Um, and, and maybe that's one of the things that we we haven't talked about while, you know, stocks are, you know, may very well be choppy and volatile in the earnings backdrop. Uh, you've also seen a huge reset uh, on the bond side of things in terms of valuations. Uh, and so the way I'm sort of thinking about this, and this is different for, for every client, uh, but you can now use, you know, short rates. You know, you think about a six-month CD or a money market fund uh, for income. You're able to get, you know, between four and 5%, depending on on where you shop. Uh, and you're able to, if, you, if you're particularly concerned about a, a deeper recession, uh, you can use longer term interest rates, think, you know, five to 10 years uh, uh, in, in a treasury bond uh, as insurance. So, uh, you know, short rates for income, long rates for insurance. Uh, and, and that's out of how you can play the bond market. And, and I wouldn't be surprised after a horrible year uh, in bonds, one of the worst years, probably the worst year on record, um, uh, that bonds perform better than stocks in 2023. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's been something that I've been reintroducing to to my families I work with is getting back into the bonds and especially uh, treasury bonds um, and CDs that that you just mentioned because I think for the last you know up until recent now um, there was this acronym Tina there was no alternative to to stocks like you know getting zero to you know less than one percent on a CD or a savings account or even a bond for that matter, you know, wasn't wasn't worth the 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 scratch, if you will. But now um, there is, and so I've been really interested in in building the fixed income side of, of portfolios out, just as much, if not more so, than than the than the equity side because you know there there comes there we've we've waited for this for a long time. But to get here, most people don't realize to get that four and a half rate or four percent rate on a two-year treasury note, you know, the the, the bond had to go down fifteen percent last year to get there. So, no, absolutely, and and this is last year. I think was the nail in the coffin in terms of exiting ultra easy monetary policy. You know, you think about the last decade uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, interest rates spent most of that time at basically zero. Um, the real cost of capital was negative. Um, you could borrow for what felt like free, uh, right? I mean, I think I think about uh, you know being able to to to, to buy my home at you know two and a half percent thirty year fix. You know, people would crazy. I would say it's almost for free. Like, you know, getting a mortgage for free, right? A home for free, but. Um, 
and, and now we've moved away from that, right? The Fed is is now uh, withdrawing liquidity from from the market. They're they're raising interest rates. They're moving out of uh, what I think capital markets got very comfortable with uh, in terms of just just easy lending uh, and cost of capital type of environment. And so, you know, last year a sixty forty you know six percent stocks, forty percent bonds. Uh, was down about 16%. Um, you have to go back to 2008 in order to get a year that bad for a 60-40 portfolio. Uh, and in fact, you've got to go back to 1974 uh, to go back to a year in which both stocks and bonds were actually negative. And so I think 2022 was really uh, sort of that year in which you know capital markets said, well, we, we are going to be stepping into a new investing regime. And as a result of higher interest rates, uh, these asset values will need to be repriced. Uh, and so that's what I think you saw happen. Uh, and now as, as an investor, uh, we look at this as, as, as you know, creating a lot of long-term opportunity, uh, whether it's in growth stocks, whether it's in value stocks, uh, and also particularly on the bond side, because again, this movement in interest rates, that inverse relationship between uh, interest rate on the bond and the bond price, uh, that move higher in rates meant bond prices went lower, and that's how you got that negative return. Uh, we could we may be stepping into an environment in which the the inverse happens over the course of 2023. So you know maybe that's uh, maybe that 60 40 portfolio looks a little bit more uh, like a uh, like a 55 45, right? Or maybe even outright 50 50. You know, given the prospects of potential move higher in bond prices move lower in bond yields as the Fed talks about uh, potentially stopping, stop raising rates and, and maybe turning the corner uh, over the course of this year. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad you, you, you hit a point there. I just want to come back long term. You know, I know that a lot of our conversation today has been focused on what's going on in the here and now, but there, there comes a point where we need to remind ourselves. I need to remind, you know, the families that I work with, you know, everybody's time horizon is different. Like if you're an, if you're a retiree, you know, you, you're not looking like 10 years, 12 years, 20 years down the road. But if you're somebody like me, that's in my, you know, mid, mid to late forties, you know, I still have a very long runway uh, to go. And so I, I think it's really um, a pointed effort that needs to be made that everybody has their own time horizon. But if you have a long time horizon, these are blips on the radar screen. Like we have, as I tell my families, we have a hundred years of, of history on our side that, you know, through wars, famines, recessions, pandemics, you know, you name it, you know, the, the market tends to go higher. Um, but, you know, there will be bumps and noise along the way. And that's the, what we call the price of admission. Exactly. I mean, you know, volatility is a price we pay as investors and, you know, you know the, the beauty is over time, you, you benefit from things like compounding. Uh, you benefit from not trying to time the market, but you know, generally speaking, buying uh, stocks when when things are are, are cheap. Um, you know, and so you know, again, I think it's just sort of these these you know, everyday principles um, that I think are really important to investing um, and, and and to really help uh, people reach reach those longer term investment goals. Well, I could I could keep talking this with you all day, but uh, I know you need to get back to your to your day job and, and mine as well. But you you have brought up uh, the fact that you are a new father. Uh, I think you said your your daughter, right? Yes, yes. Daughter's about twelve weeks old. So, as most people know, with this show, my my closing question is: 
what is the best thing about being a parent? And you're, you're coming at this very new. So we'll, 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 I know we, we will have further uh, future conversations. So uh, I'll, I'll, I know I'll be asking you this again, but any, any first initial thoughts on that question? Um, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've spent, I, I turned 30 last year and I, you, you spent the last 30 years really more or less focusing, or at least me focusing on myself, right? My career, um, you know, what I'm doing in my life. And now you've got this, 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 this perfect little person that's, that's yours, um, that is, 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 is worth all of almost what feels like all of your time and, and energy. And so, I guess just the, you know, this, this period of selflessness, uh, if you will, has been, I think, eye-opening, humbling, as, as, as well as rewarding, uh, for, for myself and, 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 and my wife as well. And so, uh, I think I would say that's sort of, uh, the, the, um, uh, what I'm getting out of being, being a parent today. It's wild. We're still, we're still counting in weeks, right? And, and she gave, she gave us four hours last night. So we were super excited to be able to sleep four consecutive hours. Uh, but it, it gets, it gets better every day. That is awesome. I, I love, uh, I love have asking that question to, to all the parents I've had on, but especially with, with new parents like yourself, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's awesome. It is, uh, it's, I think my wife, Teresa, once told me, or she tells other people, it's like, it's the hardest job you'll ever love. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I, I, I categorize it as sort of, uh, this is the happiest tired I've, I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Well, Jordan Jackson, thank you so much for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And uh, I know that we'll be uh, having uh, conversations to come. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.